Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. Uh, and one of the things that has distinguished the work of Share Our Strength in those categories has been a series of over 35 years of win-win partnerships with businesses that are trying to make a positive impact for change in the world. Uh, we've got a guest today, Bill Novelli, who has written a book on this topic. It is called Good Business. Uh, Bill is somebody who uh, I was going to say as a mentor to me, Bill, you've been a mentor to almost all of us uh, in the nonprofit sector and at the intersection of uh, commerce, what I think of as commerce and justice. Uh, Bill's had an incredibly distinguished career. We were fortunate enough to have him on this podcast once before, uh, maybe best known as the founder of Porter Novelli or best known as the CEO of AARP, uh, also had been the executive vice president of CARE and the founder of a Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. Uh, whenever there's been an effort to create social change through marketing, a powerful marketing of ideas uh, and the engagement of the business and the corporate sector, Bill Novelli has been at the forefront of it and now has written a very important book called Good Business that's going to enable others of us to follow in his footsteps. Great to have you on, Bill. Hey, Billy, thank you so much. Um, you called me uh, a mentor. I want to call you a mentor. Um, I think we connected back when I read your book, uh, The Cathedral Within, and I've been a fan of yours ever since. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm really excited that um, you've written... Uh, good business. First, before we get into the book, just tell us, um, we're 10 months into a pandemic. Uh, I know you're also uh, a professor uh, at uh, the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Uh, how's the pandemic affected you? How's it affected your work? Um, where do you think we are in this thing 10 months in? I think like um, everybody else, uh, most universities, Georgetown is principally remote. And I think the students are adapting. And I also think the uh, the faculty are adapting. But you know, Billy, what, what I think is really interesting is um, uh, I've been talking to a lot of nonprofit leaders like yourself, a lot of corporate leaders. You know, they, they seem to have the attitude that they've got to take care of their own. And of course, there have been layoffs, but, but how do they take care of their own people? How do they take care of their communities? And then they get really, I think, expansive and they say, you know, how can we make this this organization in this country a better place? Well, that uh, you've really put your finger, Bill, on what our operating philosophy has been at Share Our Strength. You were in, in the most direct and literal way a mentor to our president and CEO, Tom Nelson, who I know was your number two at uh, AARP. And Tom has led powerfully during this pandemic particularly focused on, we've got a staff of 270. How do we make sure that they have what they need to get the job done? They're trying to care for a lot of others. We're trying to feed millions of kids around the country who depended on school meals and now are not in school in many cases or hybrid. So Tom's first order of business has been exactly what you just said, which is how do we make sure that our staff working remotely has what they need, everything from the, you know, the, 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 physical materials and equipment to the mental health resources that so many have needed to, so many around the country have needed to get through this pandemic, the childcare resources, the, uh, the time off uh, for, you know, work-life balance, uh, all of that has factored in. Tell us about good business. How did you decide to write it? What motivated you to write it? How long did it take? When did the idea first come to you? 
you know, as an author, you know that uh, it's painful to write a book. <laughs> I, I felt like I had something to say. You know, I, I think we have a country at a crossroads right now, and um, we've got to get things together. And so um, I wanted to offer some specific ideas on how we can do that. But in another sense, I wanted to write this book for my grandkids. I, I really tackled it. I labored at it. Uh, and, and as I said, you know that too. Uh, it's turned out to be a labor of love. So, so Bill, you mentioned being at a crossroads and you mentioned having grandkids and I've got a grandchild of my own. One of the things that suggests is somebody who's had the benefit or the advantage of taking the long view. You and I have been around for a while. It, does this feels to most of us like an unprecedented time, not just the pandemic, but the turbulence of the, of the last four years in our government. How do, how do you compare this with your perspective, with the long view? What how do you describe the time we've been living in? Well, I'm, I'm an optimist, Billy, and I, I think you are too. I think of it this way. We are in a tough time. I mean, we are a nation divided, but also um, these things tend to be cyclical. We've gone through this before in our nation's history, and um, we overcame this kind of division before, and I feel as though we can do it again. And I think uh, here we are coming upon a new administration. This, this can be a time of reset. Tell us a little bit about the kind of the central thesis of of the book? Well, there, there are three themes to it, basically. Number one is that wherever you are in your career, whatever organization you're part of, the way I like to say it is you can make a dent in the universe. So that's, that's one important theme. Another one, Billy, is that companies are discovering more and more the idea of purpose. You know, the triple bottom line of, of people, planet, profit. And as they do that, they're learning how to do well by doing good. And this is a very positive trend. I'm not saying all companies are there, but many of them are figuring it out. And then the third thing is, it goes back to our grandkids. You know, we have an obligation as, as privileged people. We have an obligation to make things better. We need to attack what, we, what we're facing right now. Um, and we need to, as I said before, have a reset. When you talk about purpose-driven companies, and you mentioned uh, earlier that the cathedral within the book I'd wrote, as you know, for share our strength, uh, so much of our work has been built upon the notion that by working with businesses and with companies who want to make an impact in the community, you we defined it as creating a actually a new kind of wealth. Most people think of wealth in the personal sense or in the corporate sense. We thought of it in the community sense. Uh, can you engage businesses and companies in a way, in a purpose-driven way, doing well by doing good, uh, to actually generate the additional resources beyond just charitable or philanthropic resources? Can you actually generate resources uh, from the business world that are dedicated to a social purpose? So, you know, what you're writing about has been core to everything that we've been able to do at Share Our Strength. And we've always felt that there were other nonprofits and businesses and potential partnerships capable of doing much the same thing. And we work with really great companies. They range from, you know, Williams-Sonoma to City to Food Network and the Discovery Channel and Open Table. There's countless, countless restaurants. But at the core of all of it has been this notion that you can actually prosper by having a, a an impact in your community, that your employees, it's going to make a difference to your employees. It's going to make a difference to your, your customers and your, your consumers. Are there specific examples in your work or in your research or in what went into writing the book of companies that have done well by doing good? 
There are there are many examples, um, and I want to say that share our strength in my mind is almost a prototype for partnerships. And I think that uh, partnerships are a key way to create change. But you know, and you've probably seen this yourself. You know, there are partnerships, and there are partnerships. Uh, many companies uh, really want to partner with you, uh, but at the same time, you may not agree with them on all aspects of what their of their agenda. And so, uh, you know, the book is called um, "Good Business," but the rest of the title is "The Talk, Fight, Win Way to Change the World." And so, oftentimes, you can do a partnership with a company and at the same time disagree with them on many of their uh, policy agendas and so forth. So, in my mind, um, partnerships are important. They're critical, but you have to be able to talk and fight. That's really interesting to me. Say a little bit more about that. And the reason I ask, and the reason it's so interesting is, you know, and I find this particularly with young, younger people and students, when I talk to them, there's often questions about, are there certain companies that who, whose values you don't share that you would not work with? Are there companies that are, you know, conducting themselves? Maybe they're trying to support anti-hunger work, but they're not supportive of an increase in the minimum wage? Uh, how do you navigate that? So this notion that you can talk uh, and work with as partners, organizations you might disagree with, how do you how do you navigate that? What kind of moral compass uh, helps you find your way through that? Well, I, I, you know, I start from the premise that we, we've got to get everybody at the table, Billy. You know, these social problems, these environmental issues that we face, they're way t- too big for endless combat. So we need to get everybody at the table. And you've seen these companies that say, well, I don't want to deal with these nonprofits, these tree huggers and these job killers. And then you have the people on the nonprofit side who say, you know, these corporations are the problem. They're not the solution. Uh, But as I say, um, I think what we need to do is we need to talk and fight. And, you know, um, I give as the ultimate example that I've negotiated with the tobacco industry. Now, it's hard to find redeeming social value in the tobacco industry. But if we're going to make progress, whether it's um, food industries, beverage companies, uh, you name it, uh, we've, got to, we've got to have everybody together and we don't have to agree on every issue. And for those who don't know the story of how you talk to the tobacco industry and what resulted of that, give us the, give us the, the snapshot of that. <laughs> well, I've still got the scar tissue to, to prove that that happened. <laughs> You know, the, um, there's one chapter in, uh, in, in Good Business about uh, t- the tobacco wars then and now. And of course, they're still going on, even though we've made tremendous progress in reducing adult and youth smoking in this country. Now we've got vaping. We've got the tobacco industry coming up with new technologies. They're applying their trade across the world. So you can, you can never let down your guard. But when I was at the campaign for tobacco-free kids, we and through the White House and through the U.S. Attorneys General uh, got together with the tobacco industry and we said, OK, um, what can we do to find some accord? Uh, and we came up with uh, some very good ideas. And one of the key things was to give FDA jurisdiction over tobacco. People today don't remember that you could smoke on airplanes, in restaurants, in office buildings. So another key part was banning smoking in public places. And all these things, um, helping kids not to start and become addicted, helping adults quit, raising the price, these were all contentious. And we fought these out, and we didn't succeed the first time. But over years, we basically got it together. And today, as I said, uh, smoking is really substantially down among adults and kids. 
sometimes I take my kids on an airplane and I tell them there was a time that I can remember very clearly where, you know, the plane was just filled with smoke, you know, and it seemed like everybody was smoking. And that's just, you know, if you didn't live through that, you can't imagine it. That's absolutely right. I, I remember when the uh, a key um, physician, a woman at the National Cancer Institute was in a key meeting and she had a cigarette in her hand and she said, we've got to do something about smoking in this country. <laughs> You, you were not able to hold your tongue, were you? No, I was not. Well, actually, actually, I was uh, I was in the back of the room and um, I had to laugh. As somebody who's who's teaching at Georgetown's in Georgetown's MBA program, where do you think young people are today and wanting to uh, explore kind of the avenues that you've described? Well, you just you just put your finger on um, on the light of my life. Uh, and I know you've taught business students as well. I think that tomorrow's leaders are in our classrooms today. And these MBAs that I work with, they are, despite what people say about Gen Z and millennials, these people are hard workers. Uh, but they don't work the same that you and I did when we were younger. They, they basically say, I will get the work done, but I'm going to do it my way. And for them, work is a thing. It's not a place. And they've said this over and over again, and I like to repeat it. They want what they call purpose as well as a paycheck. And the, the, the good thing is that companies are figuring this out and other organizations. And what they understand is if we want all this talent, if we want to attract these people, we've got to figure it out and we've got to give them purpose as well as a paycheck. I, I really like the way it, when, when you were describing a purpose earlier, you talked about making a dent in the universe. And, you know, so many times uh, we hear people talk about changing the world, which many of us have, a, you know, an aspiration to do. And then the longer you're at it, um, and one of my points in writing the cathedral within using cathedral building as a metaphor for, you know, you may end up working on something your entire life without seeing it uh, completely finished is that uh, social change takes a long time. You, you and I know this and um, a dent in the universe, that's no small thing. It, it may not be the same as changing the world, but the notion that you can leave a dent, um, I think is is pretty powerful way for people to think about and calibrate uh, what they want to accomplish. How do you make a difference? And I, fundamentally, I agree with you. Every Everybody has the ability to make a difference. And the whole notion of everybody having a strength to share is at the core of share our strength. But uh, how do you do it if you're not Bill Novelli? How do you do it if you don't have the marketing savvy and the communications skills and the and the, the the creativity? You know, there's lots of different kinds of people with lots of different kinds of skills, but there aren't many Bill Novellis. And what, what kind of suggestions or, or recommendations do you make in the book for making a difference if you're somebody that hasn't done all the things you've done? Well, you're, you're kind to say that about me, but um, my my thesis, I think, is like yours. Um, you know, you, you don't need to be a marketing expert or a communications expert. Everybody can do this. So I want to give you a couple of examples. Eileen Boone is the head of CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, at CVS Health. And she said that people uh, clamor to get into their company because they believe in this. These are truck drivers, these are uh, pharmacists, these are HR experts. You don't have to be a marketing person or uh, you know, a, a policy advocate or whatever. And I, a good example is um, we had a person on campus uh, a few years ago, and he was talking about his pharmaceutical company uh, using malarial drugs uh, to their advantage in, the, in Africa. 
And afterwards, this young student went up to him and she said, um, I, I want to join your company and save the world. And he said, well, saving the world is good. He said, but I need people who understand supply chains. Huh. <laughs> so you need commitment, but you also need competence. And, and uh, this is why everybody can make a difference. You know, I'm curious, since you teach business students in particular, do you have any recommendations uh, around a question that I, I get a lot, and I'm sure you do too, which is young people saying, you know, I, I do want to change the world. I want to make a, a dent in the universe. Should I go to business school? Should I get business experience? Should I go straight to work in a nonprofit? In many cases, I've found out looking with the, you know, the benefit of hindsight that many people don't really take a linear path to that. But for somebody who's just starting out, are there any specific recommendations you have of, of what experiences they ought to get under their belt to be, make them most effective? Well, um, it's not an easy answer, as you know. So I've, I've had students and young people come in to see me or call me or whatever, and they say, um, what's the path? What's the pathway? And I say, there is no pathway. You have to make your own. Uh, and mine certainly was not linear. And there are a variety of ways to think about this. You know, you can go and work for a company and get experience and then go join a nonprofit. You can go into uh, a policy school. You can get an MBA, you get a master's in public health. There are a lot of ways to do this. The important thing, I think, is to recognize that um, we all have the opportunity for long careers and we will each find our own pathway. Uh, and that's the joy of it. And I, I know... Bill, that you had, you know, one of the things that I, I feel like makes you the perfect person to write the book that you wrote was you kind of had uh, an, an epiphany fairly early on in your career. I've heard you talk about it before, but I want to make sure our listeners hear it when, you know, you were using your marketing skills and realized that they could be put to a, a different purpose or a higher purpose. Tell us about that moment. Well, I started my career at Unilever. And, uh, you know, Unilever is a great company. Even today, they're, they're probably today uh, epitomized corporate social responsibility. But back then, they didn't. It was all straight marketing and sales. And I was working on detergents and other exciting products. And then I went to a hot New York ad agency, and it was the same thing. Um, I was working on kids' cereals and, and uh, dog food and cat food and so forth. I, I was having a problem, Billy, and it was that I, I, I couldn't find any social relevance in what I was doing. And then the ad agency gave me a new account, public broadcasting. And it was the first time they'd hired an agency uh, to build audience. And my first uh, task was to go to a press conference. And it was run by a woman named Joan Gantz Cooney. And she was uh, a clear educator. But uh, as I listened to her in this press conference, I realized she was a marketing person as well. And she was saying, I'm here today to tell you that we're going to revolutionize children's education through television. And she was talking about Sesame Street. And this light bulb went on in my head. And I thought to myself, you know, you can use marketing for many things besides products. You can, you can use them for ideas and issues. I mean, marketing is kind of like a robust discipline. And I got this idea that I could apply marketing to all kinds of causes and issues. And that was a turning point for me, and I've pursued it ever since. I have found, and I'm guessing you have, is that there were that there are a lot of people like you in corporate America, in the business community, talented, skilled, eager to build a good business. But I think you talked about being an optimist. I'm an optimist too. 
I think at the end of the day, there's something that's close to universal in most people, which is this desire to make a difference, to leave the world a little bit better. And I mean, do you, do you find that to be a, a, a universal trait or a near universal trait? I really do. I, I think that, um, as we said before, I think that people in, in virtually every walk of life would like to do that. You know, when I was at AERP, we had a lot of research showing that what people really cared about in their older years was what they called legacy. They cared about their, their, their children and their grandchildren. And the opposite uh, was also true. Young people cared about their parents and their grandparents. Um, and uh, older people want to want to leave a difference. They want to leave a legacy. And even if you're a young person, you have the same kind of yearning. So we're, we're glued together. The generations uh, are glued together in this country and maybe everywhere. People want to make a difference. You know, though we've talked a lot about your successes, but one of the things we, we often learn from also are failures or setbacks. Was, 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 was there any significant professional uh, setback that uh, you had to have the resilience to overcome and which you learned from made you even better at what you do? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, I've, I've, this book, <clears throat> excuse me, Billy, this book, Good Business, is full of setbacks. I've, I've got a, a list of mistakes and missteps. Uh, excuse me, I got to drink some coffee here. Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> excuse me. I've, I've got um, mistakes that are probably a mile long. And if, if I had it to do over again, I could do a better job. Um, I think experience is, is very important. But um, one of the biggest mistakes I made was uh, back in uh, the tobacco days. And uh, what happened was um, the, um, the, the politicians in Washington kept piling on and piling on. And finally, the, uh, the tobacco industry said, we're going to walk away from this deal. And not only are we going to walk away from it, we're going to kill it. And I thought to myself, there's no way they can do that. We've got, we've got Congress on our side. We've got the White House. We've got public opinion. There's no way they're going to be able to kill this deal. And of course, that was really short thinking on my part. Uh, what I should have done was gone back to my benefactor, who at the time was um, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Steve Schroeder was the president. And I should have said, Steve, we're, we're at a moment of truth here. I need another 50 million bucks to make sure that we get this across the goal line. And I didn't do it. I just had, um, you know, the idea that we were, we were uh, on top and um, they did kill it. And it took another 11 years to get FDA jurisdiction over tobacco. So and in my, what you're talking about limit, right now is such an interesting example of the kind of the triangulation uh, that is often required between the nonprofit sector, the business or corporate sector, and the government sector. Uh, how do you think about um, the, the, the various roles of, of each? Uh, you know, some of our experience has been that, you know, as a nonprofit, there are places where we have to prove the concept, we have to create these win-win relationships with corporate partners. Uh, and, and then at the end of the day, uh, to really scale a, a good idea, and again, this has been in, in our space of childhood hunger, we've needed public policy to, to really scale it. How do you think about uh, and, and, and talk to business students about 
what the right role of government is in this area? I think about it essentially the same way you do. Um, I think we need all three sectors working together. And, you know, it is such a mistake to say that government is the problem. Government is not the problem. Um, and when people say, I need a smaller government, we should have no government, small government. Um, I, I think that's wrong. What we need is we need the right size government. So uh, a quick example, right now, there's about a three-year backlog at the Social Security Administration for um, disability claims. We need more people there doing that kind of adjudication. It's an example of how we need bigger government. In other areas, we need smaller government. Government can create wealth. If you look at the, um, the, the vaccines that are out now, you know, governments had a hand in doing the basic science that, that created them. We need, we need the um, civil society, which includes uh, share our strength. We definitely need the, the private sector, uh, which had so much strength to offer. Um, and we need government. We've got to figure out how to work together. So, so Bill, in terms of what we were just talking about uh, with the important role of government, do you see opportunities uh, in the new Biden administration uh, for the kind of thing that you're writing about? Um, I do. I think there are opportunities for us. Um, you know, we, as I said before, Billy, I think we need a reset. And um, what we need to do is that we need our leadership in Congress, in the new administration, um, in state capitals, we need people to cross the aisle. So one of my all-time favorite politicians was uh, former Senator Olympia Snow. Yes. And she, uh, I think she epitomized the courage of crossing the aisle. And there are many others. There are people in the current Congress as well. Um, we need to find the, the uh, what I call the pragmatic center. Um, you know, most voters are in the middle. They're not on the extremes. I feel that I'm in the middle. I, I like to say, find the pragmatic center where we can we can figure out what to do. You don't have to um, abandon your convictions. What you have to do basically is to say, um, we need to make change. We need to do things uh, for the public. We need to do things, as you said earlier, for the military. Uh, and we can do this, we can do this. And it doesn't take, uh, you know, Jim, Jim Hightower is a guy who said, the only thing in the middle of the road are uh, yellow lines and dead armadillos. <laughs> and that's, that's very cute, but it is not true. The majority of the voters in this country are in the broad middle, and that's what we have to take advantage of. Well, and as, as you know, there's uh, been the emergence over the last couple of years of uh, something uh, in Congress called the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a bipartisan group. Uh, they played a role in uh, getting the stimulus done. Uh, and, and I think they are, they're the, pr the pragmatic uh, problem solvers as Democrats and Republicans who are not trying to score political points, but trying to get things done. It seems like it's uh, not in vogue to today as much as we need it to be, but it sounds like you're hopeful that that can come back. Yeah, I think the problem solvers uh, basically are on the right track. And uh, what we need to do at this point is, is make sure that we, um, you know, that we do everything we do, not just as members of Congress, but as individual citizens to bring things together. Bill, early on in this conversation, you talked about um, writing being painful, which, uh, you know, is something many writers uh, would uh, give testimony to. Uh, for you, uh, what part of the book was easy to write? What part was hard to write? Uh, what's your, what's your um, 
style and strategy? Do you write early in the morning or late at night? Do you write longhand or on the computer? How does it work for you when you're when you're writing a book? It took me um, 11 months to write this book. And um, I wrote every morning from seven till nine. And then I wrote on weekends. And, um, you know, it's, uh, Billy, you know, it is, it's hard to do. I mean, it's just a question of uh, as much as anything of discipline. And the easiest parts of the book for me to write were the current parts where I was talking about uh, my students and about Georgetown and about the work I'm doing in advanced illness and end of life care. And then the last chapter on what do we owe our, our grandchildren? Uh, those parts were, were easier than, um, you know, going back and, and um, going through my uh, old journals and reconstructing some of the things that happened in the past. Um, and uh, when I was all done and I, I handed this book in to the, to the publisher, um, he said, uh, you know, I want this book by January 15th. And I said, you, you may want it by January 15th, but you're getting it on New Year's Eve. Because I'm sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like your grandchildren were, in effect, acted as your muse, at least for that last chapter. Yeah, I think so. I think they are. But um, even though uh, my grandkids are are uh, sort of the muse for that last chapter, I really want this to be for for um, all grandkids. And, you know, we owe our kids and we owe our grandkids uh, a great country. We were given a great country and we need to pass it on. And when does the book come out, Bill? Uh, well, the official pub date is February 2nd. Uh, so it'll be out in, in late January. You can pre-order it now. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, um, uh, I'm at a stage now where I just want to see what it looks like. So you haven't, you haven't gotten your, your hard copy yet? Well, I've got, I've got what they call an ARC, you know, Billy, an advanced reader's copy. And I've sent right. them out uh, to people. It's not the same, though. It's not the same, right? Uh, you know, and one last thing I, I'm curious about, I think of this book and its message, um, particularly of doing well by doing good as a message for everybody from the business students we've talked about to corporate CEOs and elected officials. Um, where do you think there's resistance to this idea? Who, who's not buying in, into this? Who, who still needs to be persuaded? Well, I don't know if it's a matter of persuasion. I think it it's a, a compelling strategy. Uh, but I think there are still bad actors out there. You know, uh, you can open the Wall Street Journal any day of the week and you'll see uh, corporate misbehavior and so forth. Uh, so it, it's not like um, everybody's uh, got it figured out. Uh, but for the most part, I think we're, we're on the right course. We're, we're, we're taking the right steps. As you said, students, um, corporate executives, uh, nonprofit leaders, uh, government officials, uh, we're, we're going in the right direction. We just have to basically get it together. Well, it, it feels to me like there's no doubt that the philosophy is taking hold. It has been taking hold. Hopefully, uh, this book accelerates it. Uh, hopefully, it leads to more people choosing the path that you've chosen. Uh, as, as you and I have said, we know that they want to. So the book is Good Business, the Talk, Fight, Win Way to Change the World. Uh, that sounds so Bill Novelli to me, the talk fight win way to change the world. I think you've just, uh, you, you've just captured um, what your career has been about. And you've been one of those change makers, Bill. And it's really, really a special treat for us to have you on Ad Passion and Stir. Billy, it's such a, it's such a treat to be on with you. You're a terrific uh, interviewer and you're a mentor as well. 
Well, thanks. We've enjoyed the conversation. I urge people to go out, pre-order or buy uh, Good Business. Mine has been pre-ordered and it is on the way. Uh, Bill Novelli, somebody that we can all learn uh, a lot from and everything that we care about at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign uh, will benefit from these strategies. Uh, so thanks to our team at Share Our Strength that um, supports all of our work and particularly the, the my colleagues who work on the podcast uh, and our producer at District Productive, uh, Paul Woodall. Uh, thanks for listening. You can go on to our website at adpassionandstir.com and find other episodes and you can rate them and rank them and share them uh, with friends. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Mm-hmm.